Well, as we come before God's word, let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, having sung those words, we do echo their thought. All glory be to Christ throughout the ages, from before creation until eternity future. You deserve our praise and our glory and our worship. And Father, as we open your word this morning, we pray that we would give glory to you for it as well. But we pray, Lord, that you would transform our hearts through the preaching of your word. Please teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The title for this sermon is Run the Race. Run the Race. This will be a different type of sermon for what I normally do. Normally I would provide headings on which to hang each main point. Uh, but on this occasion I'll use each phrase in the text as our points. Uh, you'll get the hang of it as we go through. Normally I use the ESV as my text. Uh, this morning I want to use the New American Standard Bible, which will be up on the screen for you. Um, but you can follow along in whatever translation you have in front of you. So let me read out Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 according to the New American Standard Bible. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That will be our text for this morning. In this text, the writer of Hebrews has adopted the image of an immense stadium. There's one that's on the screen. The one on the screen was completed in 144 AD. It's called the Panathenaic Stadium in Athens. It's built entirely of marble and it was excavated in 1869. You can see there the running track is surrounded on three, three sides by tiered seating. And the writer of Hebrews has such a stadium in mind as he writes these words. If you go to the next slide. <clears throat> I want you to imagine that you are there when this race is being run. In fact, I want you to imagine that you are one of the runners in the race. All those tiers of seats are filled with cheering crowds. And as you await the start of the race, the writer of Hebrews assumes the role of coach for you personally. And he puts his mouth close to your ear because of the huge din that is there, so he wants to make himself heard to you. He puts his mouth close to your ear, above the roar of the cheering crowd, and he draws your attention to people, individuals within the crowd. The question, of course, is why does he do that? Well, the first part of the text tells us the word therefore. That first word ties that verse in with what has come before in the last chapter. What's in the last chapter? What's in Hebrews 11? The heroes of the faith. And those heroes of the faith are there in the crowd cheering you on. And that's what the next part of the verse points out. Therefore, since we are, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. 
Now those heroes are introduced to us back in chapter 10. If you go back to chapter 10, look at verse 39. Hebrews 10 verse 39, We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that we too have faith also in order to preserve our souls. Now that sounds really daunting, as though our Christian walk is up to us. You are to run the race with all your own effort. Now if you're anything like me, if, if my Christian life was anything indeed up to me, then I will, may as well fail. I will fail. I might as well give up now. And the coach knows that as we come to chapter 12. So what he does is he takes hold of the of your arm and points out those individuals that are up in the stands around you. Those who have already run their race and succeeded. And he points out the long line of men and women who have lived by faith. And we find them in chapter 11. Now let's have a look at some of them. I want to pick out some verses in chapter 11. Look at verse 4. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 5. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Look at verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place where he was, that he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Verse 21, by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Verse 22, by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Verse 31, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And finally verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the fire, the power power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Now as the coach points out those individuals to you, those ones in the, in the crowd, you realise that they are actually looking at you and cheering you personally. As he points to one person, that person sees you looking at him and waves madly. Others give you the thumb up, thumbs up. Others yell, yeah, and they, they fist pump the air. And others are clapping and giving wolf whistles. And as you think about the lives of every one of those 18 people, you realise that they are all fickle, sinful men and women. They're not elite athletes. They are all sinners. 
Nevertheless, all of them completed their race successfully. And how did they do that? By faith. And herein lies the warning for us. Look back at Hebrews 11 verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Friends, this is the only way that any of us will successfully run our race. We will only run our race by faith. And all those men and women in the stands cheering, hollering and urging you on, they have all won. Now let me pause for a moment and ask a question. As you scanned the names of those 11 people that I, sorry, the 18 people that I wrote, that I read out, how many did you personally recognize? How many of them would you be able to describe generally what they achieved without actually looking them up in a concordance? I guess the question is this, how well do you know the heroes of the Old Testament? Many Christians dismiss the Old Testament as being irrelevant, but the writer of the book of Hebrews obviously does not feel that way. Now, if you personally do not know those Old Testament heroes, then it's almost like you are running a race, but you don't think that there's anyone in the stands supporting you. They are there, but because you don't know their stories, you don't think that they are there for you. <coughs> How discouraging would it be to be a runner in a race surrounded by cheering crowds thinking that nobody is there for you? Now, if you do not recognize those Old Testament saints and you have no idea of the struggles they faced during their race because you don't know their stories then you have no idea what benefit they can give to you personally. Those of you who think that you are the only Christian in your workplace or university class who knows the Lord, go and spend some time with Noah, who was on his own for 120 years. Noah successfully ran his race by faith. Those of you uncertain about the future as to what God would have you do, come over and speak with a guy named Abraham. God called him to leave his country, but he didn't tell him where he would end up. Abraham successfully ran his, fa his race by faith. Those of you that think that because you are old, your usefulness in God's kingdom is over, go and sit down and speak with Moses who at the age of 80 started his career as a leader. Moses successfully ran his race by faith. Those of you that are tempted to think that your lifetime of faithful service has gone unnoticed ought to go and spend some time with Daniel, who in his mid-80s was thrown into a den of lions. Daniel successfully ran his race by faith. And those of you that are convinced that there is no way God could use you because of your life of sin and shame and the ungodly past that you and your ancestors have lived, go and make an appointment and speak with Rahab the prostitute, another hero of the faith. She wasn't even an Israelite, but she successfully ran her race by faith. Let me speak bluntly with you. If you have been a Christian for more than two years and you do not recognize these men and women of the faith, then you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And there are others in the crowd that the writer does not even mention, those who have lived by faith since the book of Hebrews was written, those heroes from church history. The martyrs are there in the crowd the reformers are there. The saints of old are there. You go to the next slide. Does anyone recognize that lady? 
anyone know who she was? This is Miss H.R. Higgins, H-I-G-G-E-N-S. She actually lived in Melbourne for decades. And I want to read a section from the introduction to her book. This is the book. It's very hard to get now. I'd love to republish it. It's called Cloud and Sunshine. Let me read to you a section from the introduction. This was the introduction to the first edition. Quote, Very few have been afflicted as she has been. As the disease progressed, she has had to submit to to very painful operations. First, her right arm had to be amputated under the elbow. Then, after a time, her left leg had to be cut off. Then the disease went to her left arm, and it could not be spared. Then, after some, some years, the part of the right arm which remained had to be cut off above the elbow. During the past 28 years, her sufferings have been very great, but she has always been bright and cheerful, full and full of thanksgiving to God. She says that she sometimes fretted, and no wonder if she did. But whenever I was able to call on her, I never saw her fret. On the contrary, I found her not only patient, but praising and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Her joy in God seemed to fill fill her room with sunshine and those who went to comfort her went away feeling that she had cheered and comforted them. End quote. Miss Higgins is now also in the crowd. Her body completely healed and she too is cheering you on. Those people are all in the crowd shouting encouragement to you and I as we run our race. Now, after pointing out those saints, the coach now turns our attention to the race itself, and he has some advice for us. And this brings us to the next section. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Now, that word encumbrance is not referring to things that are necessarily sinful. So what exactly does the writer mean by those phrases, every weight or encumbrance? Every weight is in the ESV. It means throwing off everything that will slow you down. No one running a race to win would ever consider wearing an overcoat, a scarf and gumboots. This phrase, every weight, refers to those things that in and of themselves may not be sinful, but could hold us back from enjoying the very best. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have hobbies or other non-spiritual pastimes. Each of us needs times to relax and a hobby can assist in that and that's absolutely beneficial. However, such hobbies must not become all-consuming. And if it does become obvious either to yourself or to others that these things are tending to hold you back, are you willing to act decisively to remedy that situation? Steve Lawson says, quote, It is often the good things in life that keep us from the best things. End quote. And this brings us to the issue of priorities. A good way of ordering priorities or being a helpful way for us to understand our priorities is to use the fingers of one hand. Our priorities ought to be as follows. God, spouse, children or family, work or ministry, and hobbies. That should be up on the screen for you. However, all too often we, particularly men, get them absolutely reversed. So functionally speaking, our hobbies often come first. Obviously, work or ministry then takes up a huge amount of time because we need to be able to support our hobbies, so we need to make money. 
Our kids bleat, so we have to give them some time. Our wife gets any time that is left, and God gets the crumbs. Now, we may nod our head at the the fact that we need to reorder our priorities, but do we actually make the necessary changes so that our priorities go from that side to that side and go the right way up? Each one of us as believers needs to prayerfully consider what things weigh us down personally and be willing to jettison that weight in order to run, in order to win. However, in Hebrews 12, that is not the only instruction. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, the writer of Hebrews here continues his racing analogy. A runner set on winning will not wear clothing that is likely to entangle his legs and trip him up. A long flowing robe would be a ridiculous choice for running a race. The runner would fall flat on his face and he would forfeit the prize. In 1 Peter 1 verse 13, the Greek which speaks of, quote, girding up the loins of your mind, is a picture of a man gathering up all the loose bits of his clothing, tucking them into his belt so that he can then run. And the picture here in, Roman, uh, in Hebrews 12.1 is similar. Just as a runner's clothing can trip him up in his race, so too sin will trip us up in our race. Now, notice there in the NASB, it uses the definite article, and the sin which so easily entangles. Now, the the English Standard Version uh, omits that definite article, so the reader could easily conclude that it could refer to any sin. You may even think that this is one of those whatever sin applies to you situations, but that is not the case. The writer is identifying one particular sin that can entangle any of us. So obviously we need to discover what that sin, uh, that actual sin is. And I believe the context tells us what it is. Remember, the context of these verses are the heroes of the past who have overcome this world and its temptations by faith. We read the list earlier. By faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Joseph, by faith Moses, etc. All of those saints in the stands overcame, overcame this singular sin. So what is it? What is this singular sin that can so easily entangle any one of us? It is the sin of unbelief. It is unbelief that convinces us that our situation is somehow different and therefore we do not have to trust God or we cannot trust God. Look back at Hebrews 11 verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. All of the heroes mentioned in chapter 11 had that faith. Now, if you are a Christian, let me ask you a question. Are you facing some circumstance where you feel you need to come up with a solution? Whatever whatever solution you come up with apart from God demonstrates a lack of faith. And it is sin. Remember Abram, back in Genesis chapter 12. He demonstrated faith at the beginning of that chapter when he obeyed God's command and set out from Haran. 
Right? That was commendable. But then just a few verses down in that same chapter, Abram failed when famine forced him to go to Egypt and he lied and told Pharaoh that his wife Sarai was his sister. He actually did this twice. Both times proved to be disastrous. Chapter 20 was the other time when he did that. And in both cases, God had to supernaturally save him. Abram failed to trust God on both of those occasions. Romans 14 verse 23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You say, yeah, but Abraham is one of these heroes of the faith. Yeah, but it wasn't him that overcame, but God. Let me quote John MacArthur. Quote, Doubting and living in faith contradict each other. Unbelief entangles the Christian's feet so that he cannot run. It wraps itself around us so that we trip and stumble every time we try to move for the Lord, if we try at all. When we allow sin in our lives, especially unbelief, it is quite easy for Satan to keep us from running. End quote. So those are the two negatives in our text. What are we then to do positively? Well, again, the text tells us. Therefore, since we have so great, uh, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This section provides the what and also the how. The what is this. Run. Run the race that is set before us. Now, this is not a walking race. This is a running race and we need to run. And we are to run the race that is set before us. And the Greek word for race is agona, from which we get our English word agony. Folks, this is a gruelling, hard race. John MacArthur again, quote, A race is not a thing of passive luxury, but is demanding, sometimes gruelling, agonising, and requires our utmost in self-discipline, determination, and perseverance, end quote. But there is encouragement. You are not running on your own. Your Christian brothers and sisters are running alongside you. You need their encouragement. There are many Christians today who think that they don't need fellowship with other believers. They do not seek out fellowship, but coast along running their own race. But they're wrong. And scripture tells us, turn back to chapter 10. And look at chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved brothers and sisters, we need one another. If you call this church your spiritual home, then you need to be here with God's people. As often as you can. I know someone that says when the church doors are open, I want to be there. That's a good attitude. Barring sickness or extreme old age, and rotating shift works, all of which uh, sh uh, shift work, all of which are beyond your control. The rest of you ought to be here at church each and every week. Many of you will remember the 2000 Sydney Olympics, where Kathy Freeman ran and won the women's 400 metres. It was a stunning victory. However, let me quote an article that came out 17 years after that event. You see the picture of her there. <coughs> Freeman, 
Freeman, quote, Freeman crossed the line, unzipped her suit, crouched down on her haunches, shook her head, put her hand up to her face and closed her eyes. Australia saw it as her being overcome with emotion. After all, winning Olympic gold was something Freeman had dreamt of doing for years. But Australia was wrong. She wasn't emotional or overwhelmed. She was disappointed. She said, I actually crossed the line, looked across at the time, 49.11 seconds. I was immediately disappointed because I would have loved to have run 48 seconds, end quote. The article tells us that Kathy Freeman expected the other women in the race to push her, forcing her to go that bit faster. But they didn't do that. It was as though they had mentally accepted the fact that Kathy Freeman, an Australian racing in Australia to a home crowd, obviously must win. So they didn't even try to catch her. So even though she won the race, she was disappointed with her time. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, you and I need to actively push one another. That's what, consider how we will stir up one another to love and good works. That's what that means. I need you to do that for me. I need you to spur me on. And when one of your elders tries to spur you on, you need to respond positively so that we can all run faster. Now there are some Christians who struggle to build relationships with other Christians because they've been hurt in the, in the past. I, I get that. I understand that. And I'd like to recommend the book that you can see on the screen, Relationships A Mess Worth Making by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp. Yes, relationships are difficult and often messy, but they are a mess worth making because God uses those relationships to benefit both yourself and other people. Another aspect of the how is that we are to run the race with endurance in the text. This Christian race is not a 100-metre sprint. It is a marathon. Each of us needs to pace ourselves so that we don't wear out and fail to finish. There are many Christians who start the race brilliantly. They might run with panache and style, but they don't realise that this is a long-term race and so therefore they bomb out before they actually get to the finish line. How single-minded are you about winning the race rather than participating? Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, please. (coughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 9, look at verses 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Getting back to Hebrews 12, how do we run to win? Well, look at the passage. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Whilst you are racing, you need to ignore the crowds that are cheering you on. You need to keep focused 
on the prize. In 1952, a woman named Florence Chadwick decided to attempt the 26-mile swim between the California coastline and Catalina Island. It should be up on the map there for you. Roughly 15 hours into her swim, a thick fog began to set in, clouding Chadwick's vision and confidence. Her mother happened to be in one of the boats at the time as Chadwick relayed to her team that she didn't think she could complete the swim. She swam for another hour before deciding to call it quits. As she sat in the teetering boat, she discovered that if she'd continued on for another half mile, she would have reached Catalina Island. Out of a total distance of 26 miles, she was only half a mile from her goal. Florence Chadwick gave up because the fog obscured her view and she could no longer see the coastline she was heading for. The article continues, quote, Two months after Chadwick's failed attempt, she tried the swim once more. Once again, a thick fog set in. But this time she had a mental image of the shoreline in her mind as she pushed herself along. And not only did she succeed, but Chadwick ended up making the swim an additional two times. Chadwick also became the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. She did so in record times, end quote. Just like Florence Chadwick swimming in the fog, we too are not able to physically see Jesus. But just like the shoreline of Catalina Island, Jesus is there. And you and I, by the eye of faith, need to look to him. Turn over to First Peter chapter 1, please. First Peter chapter 1, look at verses 3 to 9. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." We need to be focused on Jesus. Now, one of the clearest examples of this point in Scripture has to be Jesus walking on the water in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. (coughs) You remember the situation. It was night, and the disciples had been rowing hard, and Jesus walked on the water towards them. Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus... Uh, made as if to walk past them. And I sort of wonder if that was a joke on them. Oh, there you are, guys. Sorry, I thought you were over here. Sorry, sorry, I didn't see you over there. You know? And Peter, Peter said, Oh, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. And Jesus said, Okay, come on. Come out. Come. So Peter got out of the boat. Now, we sort of put, put it on Peter. Peter was, had lack of faith. But think about the situation. Here he was in the darkest part of the night, waves rising and falling around him and him probably using his arms to sort of try and stay balanced. (coughs) And you can imagine the other disciples were probably egging him on. Hey, Pete, don't look down. Oh, look at that shark just next to your left leg, Pete. 
And as he got closer to Jesus, and just as he was thinking he was getting the hang of this walking on water caper, he began thinking about the wind blowing. And that caused him to take his eyes off Jesus, and he sank like a stone. (coughs) Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed hold of him. Peter lost his focus on Jesus, and he started to sink. We too will do the same in our Christian walk when we likewise take our eyes off Jesus. Now the passage does not simply tell us to focus on Jesus. The writer also tells us about how focused Jesus himself was. He tells us back in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. Now what do those verses mean? Well, if you go to the next slide, let's have a look. Jesus is first of all the author of salvation. Hebrews 2 verse 10 also uses that phrase. Let me read that verse to you. Hebrews 2 verse 12. Um, no, sorry, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Salvation is all of Christ. We see that in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, which tells us that without Christ we are dead. Now, dead bodies can only do two things. They can decay and they can stink. They are dead. My wife has a program from the 1984 season of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Pirates of Penzance. And in there we read the following, quote, During the American tour of pirates, a naive lady asked Gilbert if Dear Bark were still composing. No, replied Gilbert, Dear Bark is by way of decomposing, end quote. That's what dead bodies do. Even famous composers decompose once they die. Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 37, please. Ezekiel chapter 37. Look at verses 1 to 8. Ezekiel 37, verses 1 to 8. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and I will put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So you can imagine at this point, Ezekiel's there, these bones look great, an army of people, but they were still dead. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now they were alive. They had the breath in them, a mighty army. Friends, when someone comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, even the faith that prompts them to repent is a gift of God. 
That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, referring to that faith, is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Jesus is the author of salvation. It is all of him, including the very faith with which you believe. But not only is Jesus the author of salvation, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he is the perfecter of salvation. Well, what does that mean? It means that he is the perfect example of faith in God. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4, in the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, it says in verse 2 that after 40 days, Jesus was hungry. Well, duh, he was hungry after 40 days. And the devil tempted him to make stones into bread, but Jesus refused. Now the question is, why? Why did Jesus refuse to make bread? The reason was that it was God's will at that point in time for Jesus to be hungry. God the Father had not provided food for Jesus at that moment. Jesus was satisfied that if it was God's will for him at that moment to be hungry, then he would be hungry. And he refused to bypass God's will in order to satisfy his own craving, hunger. Following the temptation, God then sent angels to provide nourishment for him. Likewise, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that if possible, God would take the cup of suffering from him. But immediately after he said that, he qualified it by stating, yet not as I will, but as you will. He so perfectly fulfilled God's plan as he hung on the cross that he cried out, it is finished. What was finished? The task of providing salvation was finished. Jesus had been perfectly obedient to the Father's will and so salvation from that point onward was guaranteed. He perfected faith. Dear brother and sister struggling with your Christian walk, doubtful that you will make it, let me encourage you. Turn back to Matthew 12 for a moment, please. Matthew chapter 12. There may be some of you this morning for whom these verses are all you need to hear. So listen well. Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 to 21. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. One of the Puritans, Richard Sibbs, wrote a small book called The Bruised Reed, in which he encouraged Christians who are bruised and broken. And just as Jesus perfected his own faith, so he will bring your faith to completion as well. So getting back to Hebrews 12, our goal is Jesus. So what was his goal? What was his focus? Well, Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy of Jesus' work on the cross was that of bringing glory to God the Father, about which we have sung this morning. John 17 verses 4 to 5 says this, I glorified you on earth, this is Jesus speaking to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
The glory that was set before Jesus was the glorification of God and the accomplishment of his work. Now note too also in that verse in Hebrews 12 that once he had completed his work, Jesus sat down. Now that stands in contrast to Hebrews 10 verse 11 which states that every priest stands daily at his service. The priest under the Old Testament dispensation was unable to sit down because his work was never finished. That clearly shows the inability of that sacrificial system to atone for sin. If it had atoned for sin, they could sit down. But they couldn't because it, ha- it didn't. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he was able to sit down at the right hand of the Father because it was finished. So that's our passage in Hebrews 12. How do we summarize it? Well, let me do that. We are all runners in a race, with saints in the grandstands cheering us on as we run our race. They all completed their race by faith, and so will we. But like them, we too need to focus totally on Christ and run in spite of the difficulty of that race, spurring one another on in our race. And by God's grace, we too will win, not because of our effort, but because of Christ's victory. So I want to encourage you this morning, press on in your race with your eyes fixed on Jesus. And one, way, one day we too will be standing in the, in the, in the crowd, uh, cheering on those who are still running their race. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this encouragement for us. A reminder of the race that we are in and the fact that we need to fix our eyes on you. Lord, I do pray for each of us that as we do run our race, that you, Lord, you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to run to win with your strength by faith, Please give us the strength that we need this week to be able to do that. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.